0: it's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends well it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordsen.
1: Recently, there's been a massive upheaval in the amount of fireworks, not just here in Los Angeles, where Whitney and I record This Might Get Uncomfortable been also reading a lot of articles lately from New York City, San Francisco, Chicago, my hometown of Detroit, most major US cities that for whatever reason, there seems to be a massive upswing in the use of illegal fireworks this year, including M80s and fireworks that resemble, honestly, from some of the ones that I've seen, pretty damn close to the stuff that you would see at a like a county firework show. There's some ones that have gone off recently that have been absolutely flabbergasting how huge they are. And I think that may be the first time I've used the word flabbergasting on this show.
0: I was going to say.
1: Probably won't be the last.
0: It's such (laughs) a great word.
1: (laughs) I am flabbergasted though, Whitney. (laughs) You know, recently, 4th of July happened recently. And during, I guess, the summer seasons, we always do see an uptick in the use of fireworks anyway. But this year in particular, it has been... You know, and I don't use this term flippantly because I don't mean to discredit or try and compare what we've gone through through anyone who's been in an actual war zone, but the sounds have been what I would think would be like a war zone. And, you know, one of the biggest concerns that I've had in reading about the effects of fireworks is really people with severe mental illness or war veterans that have extreme PTSD. Or closer to home for us because we don't have those kind of experiences is the effects that it has on animals and the amount of animals that run away or end up in shelters or are you know, mentally, emotionally traumatized by all these fireworks. And over the course of this firework season, we'll call it firework season, I've been experimenting with different things to not only manage my own emotional reactions and mental health because it's been particularly bad in my neighborhood. I'm just it's been really bad. And so, trying to come up with ways to deal with it for my own health, but also the animals, has been a challenge. One thing, though, that I've noticed, and for those of us, or for those of you, listener, who have listened to our CBD episode, you know that we are big, big fans of the medicinal use of plant medicines, myself in particular. And of course, Whitney has experienced the benefits of CBD. I'm using a brand called Alpin Organics, and they make a CBD formula that is tailored specifically for companion animals. And I've been experiencing with giving double doses to Bella and the cats. If anybody doesn't know, I have a French bulldog named Bella and four felines here at the house. And I have to say that that formula, Whitney, has been working fantastically well. The past week or so, it's just been pretty brutal here in my neighborhood, as I mentioned. And they have been more relaxed than I have. you know. And I think I need to up my dosage of CBD, to be honest. So So far, the CBD, like I mentioned, has been working wonders for them. I ran out of rescue remedy for pets, which is another formula that I found to be really beneficial in the past for firework season. I'm still working on my emotional reaction to all of this. You know, last night, the past few nights were pretty tough for me.
0: To clarify, Alpine Organics, I looked it up because it sounds so familiar. And I think I was getting it confused with another CBD brand.
1: Oh, I think it's Alpen, A-L-P-E-N.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I looked up Alpine Organics actually, and what came up was a compliment. I love that. Every time I think, say that word, hear that word, Jason, I think of you singing that compliment song. We talked about this in another episode.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um,
1: yeah. The name of the CBD brand, to clarify, is A L P E N, Alpine Organics. It's a premium uh, CBD company for humans and for animals.
0: Oh, you know, okay. That is actually the brand that I had in mind, but Alpine Organics is actually another cool brand worth shouting out for two reasons. One is one of the first hits that I got when I looked up Alpine, A-L-P-I-N-E, it came up with Compliment, which I think now I'm getting confused too. I don't know if this is the one that our friends at No Meat Athlete were working on, but the website it came, went to is Dr. Joel Kahn's website. And I feel like it is the same thing. It's just been rebranded a little bit, but it's actually really cool. They're like B12 vitamins, D3. I tried this a while back. You tried it too, didn't you, Jason?
1: I did when it was in a liquid tincture form.
0: No, I think it still is. It's a spray. Oh,
1: it is a spray, yeah. And the cool thing about it is they've sort of identified-
0: Wait, maybe it's not a spray.
1: These are like the big three potential nutrients that most vegans or vegetarians would miss, which I think is B12, vitamin D3, and then DHA, EPA. We've actually, I think, talked about that on the podcast, I've certainly mentioned it a lot in my good mood food course, and a lot of the nutrition for mental health stuff that I've put out is that there are, and, and it is important for people that are eating plant based, organic, vegan, vegetarian to be mindful of things like K two, D three, B twelve, folate, and DHA, EPA. So I love that they've kind of combined all these things because I think they have another formula that yeah has iodine, zinc, and K two. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, for certainly years wit in the early days, maybe for the first, you know, decade, to be honest, I wasn't really paying attention to supplementing all that well. And we've, we actually have another episode talking about supplementation that you can access in our show notes at WellEvator.com. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com for all of the show notes in previous episodes. But once I really started to paying attention to some of these potential deficiencies with, it made a huge difference.
0: Absolutely. Now that we've clarified, Alpen Organics, I've tried as well, and these were sent to me a little while back. They have the gummies. They have the products for pets or companion animals, if you want to call them that. They have topicals. They have all different things. I've tried them as well, and they're vegan gummies. They're really, really satisfying. Did you get some of those too, Jason?
1: I have, yeah. I actually plowed through the gummies pretty quickly, <laughs> to be too. honest. Um <laughs> It's really smart because I think that if you take the classic approach, sort of like, I don't know, Flintstone vitamins from our childhood, if, <laughs> if if you disguise healthy things in the form of a candy-ish type of thing, people are more likely to take it. So yeah, the gummies went pretty fast around here.
0: Yep. Well, speaking of CBD as well, which again, as Jason mentioned, it's a topic that comes up a lot. I got an email from a really neat, or it was like a press release, a media email. And I wanted to give them a shout out because it sounds like a really amazing company. I don't have experience with this company yet, but I actually have used a number of the products that they sell. And as I'm going to go through their website, I'll see if Alpen is on here. There is a marketplace called Greenly Organic, which is owned by a husband and wife duo. They call themselves the one-stop shop for top products and information in the CBD and hemp market. It's founded by this Florida couple, and it's a Black-owned business, and they're encouraging more ownership and equity in the African-American community. They've partnered with a really amazing awareness program called the Believe in Me Foundation, football and educational community awareness. Have you heard about this, Jason?
1: No. Actually, I'm super curious to hear about this. Is there more information there?
0: Yeah, I'm looking it up (laughs) as we speak. It looks pretty neat. So it's called Believe in Me Foundation. It's a nonprofit that is aimed at creating a positive and influential environment that allows the youth within the South Florida community to achieve success. They're committed to emphasizing the importance of education, violence prevention, community service, and health and wellness. So it looks like I have to see what the connection is. Oh, it's just a partnership, I guess, that the Greenly Organic has done. But Greenly Organic, in summary, is a curation platform. So it's a marketplace where you can go and they sent an email summarizing some of the things and some of the brands that are in here. Jason and I really like, and I actually don't think that we shouted these two out in our CBD episode, maybe, because I know one of them, Jason, you love, Mary's Nutritionals. Do you remember if we talked about them in our CBD episode? If we didn't, we should have Mm -hmm. because their products are awesome.
1: I don't remember exactly the brands. It's interesting because when it comes to well, certain brands, and we've talked about this in past episodes in terms of different food products, but also consumer brands like Tesla and Apple and investing in things that are effective and last. But I don't know that I necessarily have used Mary's all that much because
0: I know you have because you love their patches. You know, it's like the black and white logo and they have those great patches that you raved about.
1: Actually I've used them topically for pain relief, where especially when I would say pull a muscle working out or it's so funny thing about pulling a muscle doing yoga. But hey, when you're attempting things you've never attempted before, you can get yoga injuries. I've actually had <laughs> more than a few share of yoga injuries. But beside the point, yeah, Mary's has been great for topical pain relief. I really like them for that purpose.
0: Well, I just wanted to give Greenlee a shout out. We're trying to be really mindful of shouting out small businesses and diverse businesses as well, especially Black owned businesses, is an incredibly important topic right now in, in this time in our country. And just being mindful of that. And that actually reminds me of something that I found really interesting when I was looking up like current topics for the listener. If you haven't heard some of our recent episodes, we've been highlighting a lot of different things that we found online. And one of them that I thought was super fascinating is about the social determinants of health and how non medical factors such as race, nationality, and poverty can influence people's health. And social determinants of health is often shortened to SDOH. Have you heard of this at all, Jason? Is this a topic you're familiar with?
1: Yeah, it's certainly been coming up a lot this year. I'm glad you brought it up, Whitney, because I think there is sort of a confluence of factors that affect people's not only physical health, but also, of course, mental and emotional wellness. And we talked about in a previous episode, the proliferation of food deserts in a lot of urban environments that primarily are comprised of people of color, black and brown people. And that it's extremely difficult, certainly where I grew up in Detroit, with few exceptions, it's improved somewhat. But a lot of parts of downtown Detroit are food deserts. They're still food deserts. You may have a random liquor store on a corner that's selling beer and alcohol and chips and artificial foods, things that are not good for humans. But when you combine that with economically depressed, blighted area and municipal systems that are not really designed to help elevate people out of poverty and hopelessness, you have a really deadly combination. You know, Not even, mind you, the genetic factors which you touched on, Whitney, but the long answer is I'm really interested in this, not just from a food and nutritional perspective but how all of these factors of economics and genetics and food and nutrition and mental health how these things combine together and how certain ethnicities and races and economic brackets are more susceptible to mental health issues and health issues in general as a result of these things it's a very real thing
0: it is and it's so important to discuss it and to explore it i started reading the book white fragility and it has really opened my eyes to the way that I've been operating in my life. And I think that we've talked about this a bit. I think at least indirectly, we've explored so many things related to Black Lives Matter recently. And for me, it's really fascinating to examine the whole world of wellness, health and wellness, well-being, mental health, all of these things that are going on. We've talked about how COVID is affecting, but we're also thinking about what's determining your ability to be healthy, whether it's your knowledge, your access, your financial place in your life right now. And there's just so many things that I think as white people, we take for granted. One thing actually, that I've been examining within myself is a mindset I used to have, which is, If I can do it, you can do it, which I think is coming from such a place of privilege. But I didn't realize it in the past because I was hearing it so much. But if I look back on who was saying it, it was a lot of white people. It still is. I mean, people still say it and now I cringe when I see things like that. But I also remember why I was saying them, which was this belief system that, oh, I've struggled. And so if I can work through my struggles, anybody can do. You know, it's like, We're trying to empower one another, and yet, because we're white, because we have that privilege, how can we possibly speak for people that aren't white in that sense? In a way, a lot of people have been excluded, non-white people, I should say. White people can be excluded a lot as well. I mean, when it comes to their financial situation, we should never assume that's just because of the color of your skin that you have access to things. However, in the book, White Fragility, it's really pointed out that it's not an equal playing field. (laughs) There's a huge difference between white privilege and anybody of color. And that's been really eye-opening for me. And I think that based on my education and my upbringing and just the culture and, and so many other factors, we're just not as aware of the racism within ourselves. And so I really want to be more and more mindful and more, what's the word I'm looking for? Like Not just mindful, but taking the actions and promoting wellness in a way that's not just going to be heard by people of privilege and people that are white, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does. And I'm glad you opened this up, Whitney, because there's so many things that I want to share on this topic too, and some offshoots of it as well in terms of not just, as you said, raising our awareness, but adjusting our behaviors and our actions and how we're leveraging our energy in the world from our our business to our personal relationships. I saw a meme that came out last year, and I laughed, and I've never forgotten it. I don't remember who made it or who shared it, but it was a spoof on the, maybe she's born with it, maybe it's Maybelline, that jingle. And it was maybe you manifested, maybe it's your privilege.
0: <laughs> oh man. Wow. And
1: Is it that hit,
0: true? <laughs> oh
1: yeah. And it hit me and I started laughing and I never will forget this meme because it's really made me back up and look at not just this idea of manifesting and some of the people who are really at the forefront of this there's a few people, I guess, in our general wellness or well-being community that are, are still really you know, beating the drum of manifestation. But if you look at who they are and what their background is of being white and coming from middle or upper class families, just I'm not going to name names, but you know, a little bit of digging. You and I both like to research. It's like, that's very easy for you to talk about manifesting when you have these massive advantages that are backing you from family wealth or connections or the color of your skin or whatever the case may be. And it's interesting because if I look at these leaders in the spiritual movement, most of them who talk about manifesting, and as you said, Whitney, like, you can do it too, and anybody can be a leader, and you can make seven figures, and you can manifest your dreams, and you can do all the stuff. Most of it is white men talking about it, mostly white people, but mostly white men. And yeah, I mean, I think this Situation and educating ourselves and gaining perspectives of people that are not in that class of people makes you go. Mm, it is a little bit pedantic and reductive to talk about manifesting when you have all of these advantages. And I think the idea for me of being quote self made that's been something that's really come up a lot the past few years in I guess the entrepreneurial world is people trumpeting that they are, are self made successes or self made millionaires or self made billionaires, but This is also reductive and dismissive of the fact that no one's creating success for themselves in a vacuum. If anything, I think this time in the world is showing how connected and interdependent we all are. Name a person that you might perceive as being successful. They had a massive amount of advantages, connections, serendipity. Yes, they initiated a vision and it came to fruition. There's no guarantee that it would happen. But you can't tell me that anyone's creating success or movement or growth in their life in a bubble, rather. Life doesn't work that way. No one's doing this in an echo chamber or isolation tank. No one's doing this. So I just want to kind of take this opportunity, Wit, to jump off at this point in the intersection of racism and privilege and whiteness and success to say, I really believe all the rhetoric and the spiritual jargon around manifestation and success, and you can do it too, A lot of it is coming from ignorance and privilege and people not really talking about the advantages they were born into or all the people that helped them along the way. That's not talked about enough. And it's very easy to say, look what I've got, look what I did, and not really be fully
0: transparent
1: or fully honest or fully taking responsibility for all the legs up you got along the way. That's important to speak to right now.
0: Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are just not aware. And that's one of the huge benefits I see to the current Black Lives Matter place that we're in right now with that, you know, and it's certainly brought awareness to me. And if it weren't for that, you know, and George Floyd's death and all the protests that were happening, I feel like I was very confronted. And so that's why I started reading this book, you know, or talking to other people and watching videos and just raising my awareness. I'm so incredibly grateful for that. But that in itself is also a privilege too. I mean, it feels weird to be like, I'm grateful for George Floyd's death because that taught me something that I needed to know. And that's also like kind of disturbing <laughs> when you think about it. You know, I'm laughing just out of discomfort. I pulled up an article because I was looking for a few key points. I haven't finished reading White Fragility yet. And there's a lot to unpack in your life as you're reading through the book. So it could take me a while. And it's just one of many books that are on my list right now my next is how to be anti-racist. And I feel like talking about these books is also like a little cliche because (laughs) so many people are reading them right now, but that's great. you know, It's actually a good form of cliche. And I pulled up this article from NPR, which was Interrupt the Systems, Robin on white fragility and anti-racism. Robin's the author of this book. And one of the points that is summarized in this article is that humility is key. You can't know all you need to know. It is a bit like asking how to get in shape by Monday morning. You won't be. You can only get started by Monday, and it will be a multi-part process. Diet, exercise, sleep, and so on. And you will never be in a fixed state of shape. It's an ongoing practice that must be integrated into your life. Anti-racist practice is an ongoing practice. You will never arrive. It's a journey, not a destination. And I love that because that's so true about health as well, just as exactly as it's saying. And so to combine the two together, it also reminds me of how I feel like a lot of the messaging in health is all about like arriving somewhere. You know, if you just follow these steps, you're going to get these results and suddenly your life is going to be better. And that's such a marketing thing. But we've talked about this before. The system's set up so that you're never arriving. And in one way, that's great because life is all about the journey. Like the only arrival we actually have is death, right? (laughs) And we shouldn't really be in a rush to get there.
1: Way to be morose, Whitney. (laughs) The only arrival we have is death. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. I just had to take a little bit of levity with that. (laughs)
0: That's fine. I guess, like, my point being is that we also have to examine different elements of. The wellness world right now, the racism within it, and then also all this pressure. I mean, we talk about this a lot in other episodes and kind of being anti hustle culture and getting out of that productivity culture. We talked about that in a recent episode about especially millennials are affected so much by that. And the millennial voice is super loud. I mean, again, maybe it is because I'm a millennial, as we discussed in that episode. Certainly other voices are loud as well, but it just seems like our culture is like very influenced by the millennial culture, the millennial generation there. And there's so much in this about being productive all the time and go, go, go. And I also mentioned in one of our episodes that maybe part of the root of that as well is you could trace that back to slavery and how slaves were being driven to always be performing and never to slow down and not to rest. I was reading about there's this great movement of napping and especially targeting people of color because there's been so much pressure for people of color to never rest. And I actually found this to be true. There was one point where one of the authors, and her name is escaping me. She's actually someone I'd really love to have on the show, but her work is the napping ministry, I believe. And she had pointed out in an article I read how it's really hard to find people of color in stock images, especially when it comes to sleep. And I don't know if I had like, that bias in my mind when I was researching it recently, but I'm looking for some stock images to use for a few projects. And first of all, it's incredibly challenging to find really authentic, non-cheesy stock photos of Black people doing things related to wellness. I mean,
1: Interesting.
0: It might have to do with the specific site that I use. I have an account on Deposit photos. (laughs) So you know, I haven't broadened my search to like all the different search engines. But as far as I'm aware, Deposit Photos is most of these stock image sites all kind of use the same images, and it's just depending on where your membership is. Maybe there's like a black stock photo site that needs to go look on to find more diversity. Like maybe the one that I'm looking in is uh, really targeted towards white people. Right? I mean, this is one of the things that you have to start to question, like what is this that I'm using? I can't just assume that this represents everybody, right? Like maybe there's stock companies that are more about diversity. But anyways, within deposit photos that I use, I was really taken aback by how hard it was to find just the right style of photo. Because when you do a search, there is a cool feature where you can search just for pictures of Black people, just for pictures of Asian people or Hispanic or Latino. So you can narrow it down but if you don't turn on the ethnicity filters, it's mainly white people that pop up in the stock photos sh- search. And that reminded me of that article I read and how it's actually really challenging to find photos of Black people resting. And it was part of this idea that, is it that these photos aren't being taken? These photos aren't being shared? Are people of color not being hired as models? And are they not being used in those type of photos? Fo- like, I guess I've started to question a lot of those things and just like looking at my perspective as I'm trying to bring more diversity to my work too and be mindful of that and not just always show pictures of white people. Because if I do that, then I'm perpetuating. You know what I mean? Like I'm used to seeing pictures of white people in wellness as part of my point. Like if you really step back and look at this, like if you think about social media influencers, I think of a white young woman. If I think of like, pictures at my yoga studio. It's probably a white woman. You know what I'm saying? Like The more that you step back and start to examine it, in my experience as a white young woman, that's what I've been exposed to. And there's just been so many eye-opening points as I start to examine my own life and my own relationship and what I'm seeing. And I think the part of white fragility that I paused on the last time I read it was about our education systems and how Many of us, at least in our age range, for me and Jason, were raised to know that everybody was equal despite what they looked like. And yet, especially in my small town in Massachusetts, it was mainly white. It was probably at least 90% white people that lived in my town. And when I would think of the students in my school, you know, there was just a couple people of color. And yet, I was aware on a logical level. That we are all equal. And yet, if you're not raised around enough of those people, if you don't have that diversity in your life, there's a big difference between your logic and your experience. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like, that's a huge point in the book, at least again in the section that I'm reading right now. And how even like teachers, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't think of that many non white teachers I had in high school. And the book was saying how a lot of us don't have a non white teacher until we go to college. And it's just fascinating when you start to reflect on all these things and realize like, wow, there's a lot more races in my life than I realized. But now that I'm in this world of wellness, I can start to examine it within my career as well.
1: There's a couple points that this really brings up for me. One's maybe a short point and the other is a much longer point. And I think that on one hand, if we are in an echo chamber with people of Similar backgrounds, similar ethnicities, similar skin colors, similar motivations. When you bring up the preponderance of white females dominating the wellness industry, I often feel when I'm scrolling through Instagram or Facebook or not so much TikTok, but some of the, I guess, longer players in the social industry, it seems like the same messages and type of images being recycled over and over and over and over and over. And and it gets very boring. And I have to imagine that you know, in terms of growth and expansion for ourselves, that at a certain point, you get sick of the echo chamber, and you want different perspectives, and you want people of different backgrounds, ethnicities, religions, spiritual perspectives, lifestyles, giving their input. And I think that's probably one of the only ways that we get to expand is by consciously and intentionally, as you're, you know, reading this and getting different perspectives, Whitney, that we expose ourselves, not just not just for the sake of intellectually absorbing something, but really trying to understand on a deeper level, the experience of someone who's different than us. And I think if there was a willingness for more human beings to do that and not be in this echo chamber where your own beliefs and perspectives and lifestyle is being reflected back at you all the time, because that's comfortable to a lot of people when you think about it, you know, okay, I'm just going to surround myself with people that are familiar, people that are like me that believe the same things, practice the same things, worship the same things. But as we have a foundation of our podcast here. You know, Comfort doesn't really get you all that far in life. And by willfully exposing yourself to different people who believe in different things, look different than you, act different than you, there's an expansion process there. And through that discomfort initially, you begin to realize how much you don't know. And I think that's also another one of the tenets here that we want to reinforce to you, dear listener, as we reinforce it for ourselves is we don't know what we don't know. And for as much as we think we know, there is a massive amount of life and people's experience and life stories and histories and perspectives we have no idea about. And to me, learning from other people that are different than me is one of the most exciting parts of life. And what a wonderful opportunity that we're all in at this moment to be able to do that, Whitney, you know, is like willfully dig into those places and see, I guess, in some ways, how ignorant we've been. And when I say ignorant, it's not a knock. You know, ignorance is not the same as stupidity. Ignorance is just the lack of knowledge and awareness. And if we acknowledge that we are all ignorant, I mean, all human beings, because no one is omniscient and no one knows everything, there's a level of ignorance with every single human being on the planet. And I think acknowledging that we don't know what we don't know and that we are ignorant to a lot of things, that creates a space for learning, right? Creates a space, for me at least, of receptivity.
0: Absolutely. And as you were speaking, I was looking up stock images of diversity. I found a really great resource that led me to a stock photo website that specializes in high resolution photos of Black and Brown people. And it's free, actually, which is really neat. Although you do have to be cautious when you use free images. As a side note, one of my friends got in trouble, like legally, for using a free stock image that she found on a website. And there's now like lawyers that will specifically target bloggers and other content creators out there that are using stock images without having the rights to use them. And how some of these free stock photo sites are actually not as royalty free as we think that they are. So, (laughs) little side note to anybody listening who's also interested in finding diversity in their stock photo usage, just be very careful and make sure you read all of the licensing elements of it. But this specific website is really lovely at first glance. It's called nappy.co. And I think it's interesting because we were just talking about napping, although I don't think that's what <laughs> meant to me. I was hoping when I first saw it, I was like, wow, is it just photos of people napping?
1: Talk about niche. Yeah. <laughs> as niches as can be.
0: <laughs> right. It actually is kind of neat. There's a section called Why Nappy? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of traditional stock photos? White backgrounds, New York City skyline, executives with their arms crossed. Traditional stock photo websites have always been somewhat of a joke, mostly because they are unrealistic representations of real people doing real things. Thankfully, over the years, we've seen a rise in free stock photography websites offering high quality and free photos. These sites are great. They've made it easier. Here's the thing. And then they list out some of the major Stock photo sites. The creator says, I've noticed that all of their content could use a little bit more diversity. Oh, this is made by an influencer management agency for black and brown creators called shade.co. And they're very intentional about cultural representation and the work that they do. And they weren't always able to find the photos that they needed. I mean, again, like in my experience, it was really eye opening just recently over the past few days because I wanted to make sure that I was showing. Representation of people of all different types, you know, different ages and different genders and different races and body sizes, all these different things are incredibly important. So, Nappy makes it easy for companies to be purposeful about representation in their designs, presentations, and advertisements. Really neat. And if you're a photographer, you can actually submit your photos there too, which I think is incredibly important.
1: You know, I think this highlights wit as you're. Searching for stock photos that are representing a more diverse swath of black and brown people, people of color. It really reminds me of the movement that was happening and still is happening about more black representation at the Oscars and how big of an issue that's been over the last three years of the lack of nominees of people of color for acting roles specifically and how much attention has been brought to that. And for me, what I reflect on in that is really zooming out and looking at not just the lack of representation on that level, but a lot of our mass media, right? And what I mean by that is stereotypes get really, really enforced, not across the board, but in a lot of cases, black and brown people are subject to typecasting in a lot of mass media, TV and movies in particular. I mean, we're talking about photos, but I think it's an interesting offshoot. And as an example, I remember when I was really little, And I've mentioned this on the episode talking about Father's Day and talking about my dad. When my dad was acting in the 70s and 80s, the great majority of the roles he got, because my dad, well, he's passed, but he was Puerto Rican and Spanish and was a brown man and was very clearly Latino, he got typecast. As I remember my dad would play roles like the drug smuggler, the thug, the bodyguard, the criminal. More than often, I can't really even think of a role off the top of my head more. My dad wasn't playing a, quote, "bad guy." And I don't think that's coincidence, because I think if you look at a large amount of, especially men, in particular, women are subject to this too, stereotypes, but black and brown people being portrayed as criminals, as thugs, as prisoners, as drug dealers, as quote, "bad guys." I'm not saying it's across the board, and I think there has been obviously some incredibly progressive performances and other projects that come to mind. But if you really zoom out and look at it, with in the media in general, there still are massive stereotypes being enforced where, yeah, people of color are playing crazy people, criminals, bad people, villains. I mean, it's really disturbing when you really zoom out and look at it in that way.
0: For sure. And- This also brings me back to that stock photo site in terms of the name, because I was reading it and thinking like, hmm, I kind of have some negative connotations with that word nappy in my head, and I wasn't really sure why. So I looked it up and found another NPR article about layers of meaning and how that's a really triggering word for people. And it's interesting when you see a word like that used in what I think is of positive context with that stock site, but then I'm thinking is it weird for me as a white person to be nonchalantly using that word, you know? And these are the things that are important to discuss as well. Another point that really stuck out for me in reading White Fragility is how the way that we're raised to talk about other people and use certain words and how words are, are so can be so intense at times and we have to be really mindful of, of not, I mean, obviously we covered this a lot in the cultural appropriation. And so I wanted to bring this up because it seems like that stocks that I just discovered is a positive thing, but is that being used for cultural appropriation, right? It certainly could be. Like you could be using stock images to try to seem like you're woke and whatever else. And so I think it's important to understand the different comfort levels. Like in this book, it was mentioning how there was a really great example that triggered something within me and I could kind of like put myself in the place of this situation. And the author was asking, like, what would you do if your child innocently pointed out to a black person and yelled, Mom, that guy's skin color is black. And the mom would probably tell the child to be quiet. Right. And then the next question is, why? Like what if the kid pointed out a white person and said, Mom, that person is white? It'd just be like something that you would easily laugh off but how we have a lot of shame around using words like black and i certainly feel uncomfortable around using that word i mean and then i'm like should i say african american but then that feels like i'm starting to realize that there's like discomfort in using certain terms and then this book is helping me realize the root of it because for most of my life it's felt uncomfortable to talk about black people it's like we don't want to acknowledge somebody for the color of their skin and It's not just for black people, but, you know, specifically talking about them, even using the word brown is uncomfortable. You know what I mean? Like, but yet I'm perfectly comfortable talking about white skinned people and like acknowledging that they're white skinned. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: It's interesting. Mm.
0: The whole point is that's part of the racist culture as well, that we have shame bringing attention to the color of somebody's skin. Like, and for me, like, as I've been used searching for stock photos, I'm like, I want to show diversity, but I'm also like kind of afraid to show diversity because I don't want to seem like I'm, what's that term that starts with a P Not
1: Performative.
0: Yeah. It's like, I don't want to be performative. And it's like that strange place that I'm finding myself in, which is like wanting to not be racist, but still trying to figure out how to do that. And that's why I'm dedicated to reading these books. And that's why going back to what I was saying earlier, it is a journey. And you have to step through all this uncomfortable territory and then really paying attention to the history. Like I just looked up this article about the racial roots behind the word nappy. And I'll link to that in the show notes for anyone who's curious about it too. And how this was used as a racial slur for a long time. And some people will own it confidently. There's books like Nappy Hair. There's another book called Napoli Ever After that I think was turned into a a Netflix movie or series. And, you know, there's some people that use it proudly like the stock photo website, but there's some people that say that word's always going to be uncomfortable and triggering for some people.
1: Well, let's talk about, again, encoded language. And you brought it up, Whitney, and and the use of words and, of course, what the meaning that we assign to words. Think about when we talk about a lot of negative experiences or circumstances that we go through as human beings. When someone is, say, cut out of an industry or cut out of a line of work intentionally, what do we say? We say they're blackballed. When something is made inaccessible or something like that, we say that they've been blacklisted. When we say we don't like someone's energy, what do we say? We say they're dark. I mean, if you really go into a lot of the phrases and colloquialisms we have in the English language, there's more than that. They're just not coming to mind at this moment. A lot of them have the word black in them or dark in them. Now, you might think, well, I don't see a corollary there, but on a subconscious level, there is a corollary because if we're constantly using these negative associations, blackballing, blacklisted, darkness, in the black, on and on, there is a subconscious association that's made in our neurochemistry where we associate those things with negative experiences. And I do believe that colors, for lack of a better term, are life experience of how we deal with people of color, because we're constantly using those phrases in negative associations. And that has massive power. Language has power, especially the meanings and the connections that we associate. So I wanted to bring that into light because you're talking about words, Whitney, is I'm doing my best to be much more mindful of my word choices and how I'm using language and diffusing the associations I've made with terminology like that and using other words to try and describe those situations.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's incredibly important to be mindful and conscious of the words that we use and how we talk about with them with other people, as well as the energy behind it and any shame. I mean, that's why I loved that part in the book, because I hadn't really thought about it that way, of how like, a mother might be embarrassed if their kid pointed out that somebody was black, but it's those little moments in our lives that have a ripple effect on us. It perpetuates just shame. And it's like basically that energy of you should be ashamed for having nappy hair or you should be ashamed for the color of your skin and we're afraid to talk about you. It's almost like making somebody invisible if you are afraid to use those words, right? Yeah. And then yet there's this place where as a white person, it can feel challenging to use those words positively. Another example, actually, not just words, but holding up your arm with a fist is something that I associate with with Black power. And you saw it a lot during the protests for the Black Lives Matter. But then I was like, should I be doing that as a white person? Like, is that me appropriating something? Like, you know what I'm saying? It really is open to a lot of interpretation, and there isn't necessarily a rule book for what you can and can't do. You know, because like this is true when we were talking in that cultural appropriation episode, which feels like a lifetime ago. So much has changed since we recorded that. But it was that idea of like, no matter what I say or no matter what I do, there's always a risk that somebody's going to be triggered by it. So it's that fine line of being conscious of your languaging, but realizing that. It's an ongoing journey, and it's not just about always saying things and doing things perfectly because it's unfolding and unlearning in a lot of ways. And reflecting, I suppose, is the best thing that you can do. And then raising your awareness, becoming more educated about it, and then being unattached to doing it right.
1: It's progress, not perfection, which is another one of the foundations, Whitney. I know you agree with me that that runs our own self development and also this brand. We know that we do well and this might get uncomfortable is that we don't expect people to get it right the first time. We're recovering perfectionists in our own way in diffusing our desire to be perfect with things and I think certainly right now Whitney with the education and self-awareness and ways that we authentically want to be allies with our friends who are people of color in this movement of human rights in general. I mean, to me on the biggest level, this is to me about human rights. This is about people feeling safe enough to be in the world without threat of oppression and violence and hatred and a system that's designed to in my opinion, in many ways that we've talked to, again, the food system, the justice system, the economic system, the media that are portraying and keeping these people in you know, ways of thought that are often negative and depressed and systematically so. And you know, this is not something that is going to happen overnight. I mean, there's layers of this. And one of the biggest things that I've been looking at, which has been so interesting, Whitney, has been reviewing my life and looking at ways that I have been racist, like really taking a serious look at that. And it has been really eye-opening because it's brought up situations in my life that I have not thought about in years, decades, some of them, from childhood, young adulthood, things that I've gone through in my life where I have to take accountability for feelings of hatred and anger and indifference and apathy that I have felt towards people of color and different ethnic groups and that is immensely uncomfortable to admit and talk about and i think it's important that we do you know boy i'm going to open it up now i thought maybe we could do this in a different episode but i think it's just important to go cuz i'm flowing with it you know beyond the self education which is important i've just looked at like okay how do i take ownership and admit and this is the first time you're ever going to hear about this you're my best friend cuz i haven't thought about this in decades but I grew up in Detroit, and the neighborhood we were in, my mom and I, was pretty diverse for the time, the 70s and 80s. I had mentioned this in a previous episode that one of our neighbors was a mixed-race gay couple, which was unheard of in Detroit at that time, as far as my mom reflects back to me. We had Middle Eastern people, we had white people, we had black people, we had gay people. I mean, the neighborhood physically we were in was really interesting if I reflect on it. And I felt like the exposure to that was good for me. But I remember the first feelings of racism that I had in my life was when I was in school, when I was in junior high and high school. Now, this is interesting, right? Because it was through a direct experience that I had. I want to really talk about this and get into it because if I look back on it through rhetoric or hate speech or things that people in my family were repeating or parroting to me and I adopted as a child, it wasn't that. Although there were certain men in my family and women in my family that, you know, if I look back on, they did use some racist talk that I made me uncomfortable. But specifically what happened to me and me taking ownership of the racism I felt and experienced in, in my own heart was in junior high and high school, I was severely bullied, specifically by young Middle Eastern men, primarily men that were from Iraq and Lebanon. And I remember this is hard to talk about because it's bringing up so much for me in this moment of being shoved and punched and literally spit in my face and made fun of. And we had a high concentration of young Middle Easterners in general from different countries in my high school and my junior high. And I was for years between junior high and high school, those six years, just really hurt physically and emotionally in many, many different ways. And I remember... Between my sophomore and junior years, I had, flunked out. <laughs> I had flunked out of chemistry and biology, and I had to go to summer school. And the summer school I went to between those years was actually a primarily black school. I remember I was one of the only white people in that summer school. And I remember talking to some of my new friends that I'd met there about being beat up and picked on and bullied at my school. And I remember actually thinking this is so hard to even say publicly, I was so broken and so literally beaten down emotionally, Whitney, that I thought about bringing a knife or a gun to school. I was so sick of being punched and spit on and beat up and all that shit. And I remember, as a result of that experience, carrying hatred in my heart toward Middle Eastern people for years after high school. I remember carrying hatred in my heart for people of Middle Eastern descent. Because in my mind, I had fallaciously associated that experience of being bullied and beaten up and picked on with, with, they must all be this way, right? And I really, again, looking at the roots of racism, I think that's one of the biggest sources of it is when we have a, quote, negative or deleterious experience with someone of a certain ethnicity, religion, color, we blow that out and extrapolate that to, they must all be this way. And I carried so much hatred toward Middle Eastern people as a result of that bullying experience. It took me years to undo the hatred in my heart I felt. And it was through me looking at the fallacious association that I had made of, well, they must all be negative, violent, hateful people. And through opening myself to having business relationships and friendships with people of Middle Eastern descent, I mean, some of them are really good friends of ours, Nadine, Justin, some business associates, uh, Ayaz, Kazam, in the in the past, I've had a lot of examples of people of Lebanese, Iraqi, Iranian, Persian descent. That some of them are dear, dear friends of mine that I adore and love. But it took me a long time to get to the root of the anger and hatred I felt toward Middle Eastern people. And it wasn't because of you know a lot of people think about was it because of nine eleven or terrorism or or. Islamophobia or Muslims. It had nothing to do with that. It was the link I made in my mind between I've experienced violence and hatred and bullying from these people. They must all be that way, so I'm going to hate and avoid them. And I've had to sit with these feelings. I haven't thought about these feelings in so long, but sitting with this has allowed me to reconcile the hatred I had in my heart for so long and how much healing I've done through friendships and business associates that are Middle Eastern and the healing that they've brought into my life as part of the love I have felt with them and for them, but also acknowledging, Whitney, the reason I'm saying all this is acknowledging the roots of racism, that yes, it can be learned and passed down as parroting from our parents or our caregivers or our family, or through negative, violent, painful associations we have in our life and saying they must all be that way. And it's a very dangerous way of thinking. And I've had to admit it now for the first time publicly and to you and also take responsibility for carrying that in my heart for so many years of my life.
0: Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your vulnerability and sharing that. And it doesn't sound like it's an easy thing for you to share. And it's interesting because how do I put this? It doesn't change my perception of you at all, Jason. And I wonder if that's like a lot of times our fears and the shame and sharing something that we feel shameful about is like, well, what if somebody doesn't look at me the same after I admit this? Is that part of it for you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I haven't shared this publicly until now. I mean, this is the first time I'm talking to anybody about it. Is yeah, the fear of people may perceive me as a hateful person or wow, you know, he carried racism in his heart and he carried hatred in his heart, like of course, it's the fear of being judged for it. And also, I can't control how people are going to perceive how I'm sharing of this. But I think it's been a gift for me to reflect back on this experience I had in my life of the bullying and the physical violence, the emotional bullying, and what I allowed that to engender in me, and the process of untangling that and undoing it. And not only that, but also looking at where else have I had negative experiences in my life And what other fallacious or ungrounded or racist associations have I made as a result of those experiences? And I'm still like taking the proverbial magnifying glass and looking into my heart where maybe those things are still being harbored. But I wanted to say this because I think it's important. It's important for me to be doing this work right now, but I'm saying this in the hopes that for you or any of the listeners or people that are hearing this on social media, that they also take a look in their hearts and seeing where maybe some remnants of those things, or maybe where there's some healing that's been done already around this. I think this is critical for us to do the deep inner work around this.
0: Absolutely. And I think part of the benefit in sharing these stories is it can trigger similar experiences that other people might not have thought about. I mean, Again, that's one of the reasons I love to read so much. And I find this in a lot of books, especially when the books share personal stories. And I'm somebody who is often on the hunt for lessons. <laughs> so sometimes I kind of want to skip over the personal stories in sections of books, especially if they're long winded. But I'm learning not to skip over them because some of the best lessons are within them simply because when you hear somebody that shares a story in depth with details, or even just minor you know small simple details but those details will trigger us and remind us of things that we forgot about like you and that's what happened you know for me i have this visual from white fragility i have this visual in my head of the grocery store in my head that's where the scene was that she described the author described of the mother with the child and the child pointing out a black person and even though I'm not sure that I had that exact type of experience, but I do, I was able to relate to the shame of pointing out somebody's color, as I mentioned. So once I read that story, it opened it up and reminded me of experiences I've had. And so basically, Jason, I think it's wonderful that you opened up and shared that because who knows what the listener is experiencing. And it's certainly having me reflect back in this moment. I don't have anything quite like that. But then I wonder, it's like a privilege not to experience bullying, (laughs) first and foremost. It's the experience. I mean, it's a privilege not to experience a traumatic situation, whether it was physical violence or it was sexual abuse. I find myself sometimes trying to look for things that, what if I repressed it? What if I had an experience that I just don't remember? Like you're saying here, Jason, like, I have this fear that I've repressed certain moments in my life. I think that's another important thing. Like For you sharing this, Jason, it brings about that bravery, and it has each of us examine like where are the things that we've buried within us because they were too painful to address or they were too shameful, and because we didn't want to speak them out loud to somebody else, we kept them to ourselves in a way we start to forget them but they're incredibly important and as we know with the issues being in our tissues if we're holding on to them who knows what kind of ripple effect. So I am encouraging you Jason and the listener to really examine these tough to examine things because when you release them not only do you get to cognitively learn from them but it's like you're releasing them and maybe they've been sitting there as part of the tension that you've been holding, you know? And then there's also the side of, um, what is it? Epidemiology, Jason? Is that what it's called?
1: In reference to?
0: Like when you might be holding on to hard emotions that have been passed down to you through your DNA. Is that what it's called?
1: Oh, God, no. Epidemiology <laughs> is the study of viruses and microbes, <laughs> and microbes here, which is a COVID thing.
0: Yeah, sorry. <laughs> what is the term? Doesn't it kind of sound like that?
1: Yeah, and I'm blanking on it because I'm what operating on very little sleep. We have to let go of it and it'll come back.
0: Yeah. Being passed down through your DNA is called... And through
1: your lineage. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Passed down. I'm looking this up right it's now.
1: It's not ethnobiologically, is it? No. no. That's not the right the word. Oh, epigenetics.
0: See? It wasn't that yeah. far off.
1: Sorry. Good brain. Good job, brain. Good job.
0: <laughs> I was like, I know they sound similar. Um,
1: let me have more green tea. Hold on. More but, green tea. But, you
0: know, I examine the racism that I noticed in my parents or my grandparents, you know, and especially, I mean, I don't want to call out family members. I don't feel comfortable with that publicly, but I certainly have noticed that through family members. Again, whether they're cousins or parents or grandparents or anyone else and beyond family too, it's friends and teachers and schoolmates and all these other people. Like, Just reflecting back on all these experiences, and one thing I've realized too is that I haven't had that many, or I should say I have now, but when I was younger, I didn't have a lot of exposure to people of color because I grew up in a predominantly white town and a predominantly white school system. And granted, I remember always thinking, well, I'm not racist because I remember distinctly learning about civil rights. Like, I actually remember exactly where I was in school watching either like Martin Luther King's speech. It was something related to racism. Like, I have a very strong memory of like sitting on the carpet. I think it was in the library of our school, like watching probably Martin Luther King's speech, like something like that. And Being by next to a person of color, like one of my schoolmates, right? And again, there was only a few of them. There was only a few black kids in my school and a few Asian. And that might have been it. Like, (laughs) I think we had one Middle Eastern person that I remember. Like, I mean, it was probably, it was definitely under 10. And I went to a small school. It was like 80 to 90 kids in each class. So 10 of them were of color or non-white. And I just, again, like I've just limited experiences. Like they all seemed like very pleasant people. Like I don't have any strong memories of them. (laughs) You know what I mean? And same in college too. I went to a predominantly white college. I don't know what the ratios were, but I definitely had friends that were of color. And, but again, like I think about it and I'm like, I just didn't have that many experiences. So in a way, even though I wasn't Bullied, or I wasn't abused, or I didn't have the like something as as intense as what you experienced. There's also something to be said about the lack of experience. Yeah, you know what I mean.
1: For lack of a better term, and I don't mean this directly because it wasn't an intentional choice, but it was like you were sheltered a bit.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, I I think you could absolutely use okay. that term. Yeah. But then going back to what my other point was, what was passed down to me, and what what experiences did my parents have that they passed down to me through their parenting and what experiences did their parents have. And again, like the state of the country that they were raised in and all the things going. So it's like, it wasn't just about my sheltered experience. It was about their decision to shelter me, their decision to raise me in a certain part of the country and their decision to live there. And then their parent, you know, like there's so much that's passed down. And with racism being hundreds of years and all of the things that have been going on, it's not as simple as our firsthand experiences. It's also then like the whole society around it. I mean, this is such a complex topic. And the more that we can examine it and then address it and do something about it is so incredibly important. And I I think that's why it it continues to come up. We didn't even plan to talk about that this today, but it just evolved there. And as i said before and shared from that article it's the journey of the ongoing conversation about this and you know it leads me to something else that's interesting as we move towards the end of this episode what we have been doing recently is shouting out people especially small business owners or brands we really love we're being more purposeful about bringing them up as i did earlier with that wonderful cbd company and jason bringing up a few but this whole conversation started talking about greenly organic and cbd and the Black-owned business and the foundation that they're partnered with, and then our conversation about how it's important to support Black-owned businesses or businesses owned by non-white people, and just being very aware of who's making what you're buying. And today, my intention was to talk about this brand, Swanwick. And they actually really tie into this conversation because we were talking about wellness and napping. And and Swanwick is one of our favorite brands. They make blue blocker glasses, which you may have heard us talk about. We've dabbled in it. If you're on our Instagram, we have pictures of us wearing them. We love these. They're a huge part of our well-being routines. I wear mine every day right now. I actually wear mine when I'm reading at night. So as I've been reading White Fragility, I read it on my iPad and I'm wearing my Swanwick glasses. (laughs) And the reason being that helps with eye strain because there's this belief that we're exposed to so much blue light that it actually can disrupt our sleep and harm our eyes in some ways. And there's a number of other health effects from all this digital exposure, right? So for me being determined to read on an iPad every night, (laughs) the compromise is wearing the blue blockers. And how about you, Jason? I mean, you're a big advocate for Swanwick as well.
1: Yeah. I think I've noticed in conjunction with a lot of my other evening routines that it has been a great adjunct and supplement and I've been wearing them. I think I got my first pair. When did I shoot that commercial in New York for Aetna? I think I shot that in 2017. So I've been using them almost three years now. And I find that, especially right around sundown, as we do as artists and content creators and entrepreneurs here on the podcast, work often gets done at night. And so I find whether I'm reading a book or I'm working on the laptop or I'm on my phone, which is apt to be done after 8 p.m. pretty consistently, they've made a big difference. And I notice that I'm not up with my brain kind of buzzing before I go to bed. And also, they look badass. Every time I wear them, we have a friend, <laughs> shout out to Brian Alexander, yes. USA Today, who's like, you, you kind of look like a young Tony Stark. You got a Tony <laughs> Stark vibe. I always get the Tony Stark comment, the Iron Man yes. comment. I'm like, that's good. That's a nice ego stroke. So I'm channeling my inner Tony Stark when I wear them too.
0: That leads me to the other way that we've used them in a segue I'm about to make is that we've used them in our speaking appearances. And I discovered as we were recording right now, Jason, I went to the Swanwick website and there's a picture of you on their website. I don't know if you know this. No, <laughs> they, use a, they have like this collage of people wearing their glasses. And from one of our social media posts, they pulled this image of you wearing them. It's actually a really great image of you. It's at a speaking appearance that you and I did And I took this picture of you during a presentation and you're in your maroon suit and wearing your glasses looking very Tony Stark. What was this? This was the event that we did last summer where we spoke about well-being and social media and all that. Oh, right, right, right. So this leads me to my next point though. And I feel like this is something I'd love to explore publicly and live with you, Jason, is that it's a little concerning to me. I just went on Swanwick's website and social media, and they have very little diversity. It's looking like us (laughs) all white appearing folks. Yes. yeah, There are some people that might be Hispanic or something like more like a brown shade, skin tone shade. The company was founded by two men, white men, Australian. And again, we are big advocates for what they're doing and very intentional about Mentioning brands like them, but I am concerned that they didn't seem to acknowledge Black Lives Matter at all in their social media. And I just did a quick comb through their Twitter, which is not being updated right now, but their Instagram and Facebook. It kind of looks like they proceeded as business as usual. And I have mixed feelings about that. And B, there's like maybe a few photos. I think I saw one photo of a Black woman, but like every other photo. Is of white people, it just makes me wonder. Like, I imagine it's not intentional. I don't think they're a racist company. If they are, we will find out and we will no longer support them. But maybe they're just caught up, and this is kind of bringing it full circle. Like, maybe they simply are not aware of the importance of showing diversity, and maybe they don't have people of color using their products as much, right? Or maybe they're not posting. Maybe they haven't done intentional photo shoots. Swanwick. And I want to call out any brand. And we encourage you, the listener, to do the same is ask them. And you can do this in a very kind way. And I think, Jason, and I would love to compose an email with you and send it to Swanwick and say, hey, like it's concerning to us. We want to see more people represented. And that brings it back around to this question and point made towards the beginning. It's like, if Swanwick's about wellness, self-care, preventing burnout... It's kind of like if you're going to be productive, like you got to find a way to take good care of yourself because they have that message, right? Like they're very much about like biohacking and optimizing and productivity, but they're also saying take care of yourself, too. And so that message needs to be extended to everybody, not just white people. And so I think we have to be very intentional And it brings around this question of making sure that the brands that you love, the products that you buy are doing it not just to for woke capitalism, which we talked about in another episode. Then my question is, are they not addressing Black Lives Matter? Are they not addressing that on their social media because they don't want to come across as performative? That would be my first question for them.
1: I think there's also an aspect too of how do I say this? The consideration of how different countries are handling this because here we are in Los Angeles, the United States, and my God, I mean, clearly the history of oppression and slavery and systematic injustice, and we could go on and on and on about (laughs) how this country was built and founded on. I don't want to get into that political discussion because, I mean, look, for a minute, you know, inequality and systematic oppression and slavery and using people to literally build this country is, it's just a fact, okay? It's not even a political discussion. It's just what is. But other countries don't necessarily have that much of an embedded history of slavery, racism, or systematic injustice. It is a worldwide global issue, yes, but it could be that in Australia, perhaps, although I'm sure if we dug into it, there probably is some history around aboriginals. Right. Racism is a global issue is my point, but I'm saying that depending on who is having the perspective or where they're coming from, maybe they don't see it as pressing or important of an issue based on their experience. It could be that.
0: Again, isn't that racism right there? It's sure. like the privilege sure. of not needing to acknowledge it. And by the way, I'm continuing to go through their Instagram and did find more images of people of color. There's there's a black woman, there's a black man actually used in an image about sleep awareness, which is great. There's several Asian people on here. So there is some diversity. But if you did a quick glance like I did initially, your impression would be it's all white people. You'd have to look closely for people of color. So that shouldn't be the... I mean, you know what I mean? Like We need to shift that in our marketing. Even if it is just used for capitalism, it still should be... You know what I mean? It's like there's part of me that feels like it's worth the risk of coming across as performative simply because we need to go to those extremes. What's that term where it's like overcorrecting? Is that the right term? Where you have to kind of go out of your way and make a really bold statement because that shows that you're an ally. That's part of it as well. And then it's going to take some adapting and bringing it back so it doesn't feel as performative and it doesn't feel like a marketing tactic or whatever. But it's so important. And if there's anybody listening who's a social media manager or works in marketing, like we want to encourage you to be very mindful of what you're doing. And it's okay if you're afraid that it's coming across as performative. And you can test things as well. You know, (laughs) like you can put something out there and ask people's opinions, you can see how it's received. This is a work in progress when we come back to this journey. So, we're calling out for Swanwick to have more diversity. We love them. We hope that they will include that. We, we certainly hope that they don't have racism embedded in their culture, or if they do, they can examine it and make a statement around that. And that goes for any other brand. And coming back around to the brand that we talked about at the beginning with Greenlee Organics, I want to make more of an effort to highlight brands that are a, either owned by people of color or are doing a lot in the world to connect with people of color, to represent them and include them in the work that they're doing and the marketing that they're doing of their products because I think it's an incredibly crucial thing right now. There was one other brand that we wanted to shout out. It's actually uh, very local to Los Angeles. And so if any of our listeners live in LA as we do, which is Liberated Salon. Jason, you want to talk about your recent experience with this company.
1: Yeah. So quick bit of backstory the owner, Brandon Balderama. He is somebody that I've been going to see for eight years now. Whitney, you were actually the first person to introduce me to him, yeah, eight years ago, back in 2012, and I've been seeing him ever since. And I love Brandon because he's vegetarian. All of his products at the salon are plant-based, certified cruelty-free, many of them organic. His ethos, though, runs a lot deeper. And the reason I love supporting him is for those reasons that I mentioned is his own personal ethics being infused into the business model. He has done so many fundraisers at the salon for not only animal adoption and local animal adoption organizations, but he's done a lot of fundraisers for people of color and LGBTQ plus organizations. He's done drag shows there. He's done music shows. He's done DJs. He's done really amazing creative stuff to support animals, people of color, and trans lives and LGBTQ plus. And To me, I know that if my money, and this is a very important thing that we're talking about here, this thread through Whitney, is yes, it is important to politically vote. I think it is more important with the daily choices of where we are funneling the energy of our dollars and our wealth to where is that going? Not just what is the product or the service we're getting in return for it, but the energy of that money is supporting what? What are the ethics of the owners and the founders and the people that run the company? Where are they funneling those dollars to? So, on a very small local example, supporting Brandon and his company in Liberated Salon, I know that my money is going to help support other causes that he believes in. And that's meaningful and deep to me. And I want to endeavor to do more of that in my life, you know, not just. It is important more than ever for us to support local business because obviously with the COVID situation people have been burning through financial resources at an unprecedented rate. So local, mindful, organic, helping underprivileged people, helping support animals, trans lives, LGBTQ plus, like my whole point is like let's really be more mindful than ever of where our dollars are going and who and what they're supporting.
0: Well, that brings us to the newest segment That we do on our show. We've been doing this for over a week now, I think. I don't remember exactly when we started it. But for you, the listener, if you're brand new to our show, welcome. We appreciate you being here and listening all the way through to our episodes, which average around 90 minutes each, sometimes two hours. And uh, we know they're lengthy, but we like to go in depth and make this very conversational. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe. You'll be notified when we have new episodes, which are released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Monday and Wednesday are solo episodes, meaning it's just me and Jason. And then Fridays, we bring on a guest to be part of the conversation. We've had incredible guests. And we're working really hard to make sure that there's diversity in our guests too, and the different voices, whether it's gender thing, which was a there was a period where we had a lot of men on our show, then we had a lot of women. <laughs> and then we're trying to represent people from different racial backgrounds and different lines of work and different ages and just basically diversity in every way possible, especially as we started off talking about in this episode. The wellness world is predominantly white. And we want to make sure that we see a shift in that because it needs to happen. It needs to happen in every industry. But in the health and wellness world, we really want to see more inclusive, less racism, a lot of awareness brought to that. We want to be part of that with our show. So this uh, this segment that I'm teasing here is called Frequently Asked Queries. And this comes from queries that we're seeing come up on Google Analytics, meaning somebody's typing something into Google and finding our website, our podcast specifically, or There's a really great website called Exploding Topics, which shows you the hot topics. And that was actually responsible for what we brought up today with this whole discussion. That's something that I saw mentioned in Exploding Topics, which is the social determinants of health. And I'm so grateful because the fact that people are searching for things online and having conversations about it, we can be part of that as well. So what we like to do here is try to bring up something, a funny query, an interesting query, and a serious, and or, I should say, because sometimes interesting and serious go hand in hand. So should we start with something funny, Jason?
1: Yeah, I think it would be good considering the the tone of this entire episode has been really introspective and deep and serious. Yeah, let's start right. off. A little comic relief would be good.
0: All right. Well, maybe this one's not that funny. I have to say I didn't find anything extremely funny recently. But this came from exploding topics. Like something that was trending is cat toothpaste.
1: (laughs) Mm, Okay.
0: (laughs) So since I don't have a cat, you have four cats, Jason. Have you ever thought to brush your cat's teeth or use toothpaste? Is that something that you've come across in uh, your world of companion cats?
1: It is something that I am aware exists, yes, and it is more about their willingness to receive the treatment.
0: Is this something that's recommended? Because for dogs, it's actually incredibly important to take really good care of their oral health, and it's recommended that you brush their teeth. And So my experience, I have toothpaste for my dog, and I brush her teeth every single night so I'm curious if you've done anything for your cat's oral care and if you've ever thought about getting cat toothpaste.
1: Um, I have, but again, I think that judging by their general demeanor, I'm not sure how long they would sit still without being you know, squirmy-wormies for me to actually execute it. It's worth a try. I mean, it could be an exercise in total disaster and failure, which I'm totally open for that experience.
0: What if it was like CBD-infused... Cat toothpaste. That would be like the best of both worlds.
1: That's a pretty good business idea, right there.
0: Considering we started talking about CBD for animals today,
1: it's worth a shot. I mean, hey, look, what else am I doing with my summer? (laughs) Staying home. Hey, brush everyone's teeth. Why not?
0: All right. Well, here's another funny one that's related that actually somebody was searching for recently and found our show. and, And the term was awkward cat grin Mm. like what
1: i think of the cheshire cat that's exactly
0: what i thought of right
1: awkward cat grin huh
0: (laughs) when these queries come up i i often will search it's actually pretty funny if if you search for that phrase there is a slew of image results that come up and i guess it's a meme And I've seen this before. It's like a black and white cat that looks really uncomfortable. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we maybe I'll put a link to this in the show notes. And oh, it's called polite cat. And then the funny thing is, is one of the captions for this cat's face is this cat's face makes me uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) And now I need to see the image.
0: I'm sure you've had it. Just look up polite cat or look up awkward cat grin. It's a black and white cat, kind of like your cat Figaro.
1: Okay. I'll look it up right now.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's sweet, actually. I think it's an action. I don't think it's Photoshopped. I think that's literally the cat's face. So if you have not yet seen this cute cat (laughs) looking simultaneously polite and awkward.
1: And derpy and
0: derpy yeah derpy is a good term i
1: know i'm a good cat i am look Aww. at me i'm good and i'm a good boy or girl hilarious I think
0: this is a good example jason of how you should do more with your cats like taking pictures of them you know yeah, and,
1: put them to work start paying rent guys start paying rent
0: you have noticed that your cats get the most likes on social media when you post about them
1: I don't even really bother posting recipes or any food anymore because I will literally get almost four to five times the amount of engagement on a cat photo. I'm like, oh, you guys want cat photos? Cool. You'll get cat. There you go. I'm just, you know what? Second half of 2020, turning it into a cat account. But what about the recipes? You didn't like the recipes. You liked the cat photos. So that's what you're going to get.
0: All right. Here's our interesting query of the day. And this one is interesting to me because it references somebody that we know. And I think someone was searching for more information on this. And Jason, maybe you can share what you know of this subject. The query was Chef Ito, vow of silence. Oh,
1: when did we mention Chef Ito?
0: We talk about a lot of different things. So for for the listener, Chef Ito is one of our favorite chefs, vegan chef, who is at this phenomenal restaurant called O-Lock, A-U-L-A-C. They specialize in Asian cuisine, all plant-based. Is it fully Asian or do they have a little bit of fusion in there?
1: Well, he created a term called humanese food.
0: Right, right.
1: I think in my palate, it feels like he has borrowed influence and experience from Vietnamese cuisine, Japanese cuisine, Chinese cuisine, Indonesian cuisine, like I see the influences of a lot of different ethnic cuisines, and he's dubbed it humanese, which I think is pretty cool.
0: So go on. Tell us what you know about his vow of silence.
1: Well, I don't know when it started. He's never told me directly. I know it's at least 10 years, because the first time I went to Oloc was 2007, so at least 13 years, maybe 20. Who knows? He won't say, <laughs> but he's done it as a form of solidarity for all of the animals who don't have a voice to speak for themselves and their rights and their oppression. So for him, the vow of silence was a solidarity to align himself with the voiceless animals that he has chosen to protect and uplift through his art and his activism. And Ito is amazing, not only as a chef and the creator of this incredible food, He's a really amazing photographer, and he's also an incredible activist who we've seen a numerous number of times, not only at the pig vigils at the Farmer John house in downtown LA, he's also one of the organizers of the March of Silence. And I had the wonderful privilege of speaking on a panel last year after the March of Silence in downtown LA, and we love Eto. Shout out to Chef Ito, his activism, his amazing cuisine, his art. And if anyone is in Fountain Valley, California, or downtown LA, yeah, Olak is a must-go-to in terms of amazing cuisine.
0: I really look forward to the first time I have their shrimp. Their I think that's probably why it came up, Jason. We were talking; it was because remember yeah. there was like National Shrimp Scampi Day, and, we, and then we started talking about vegan shrimp. Yep. And our favorite vegan shrimp of all time is at Olak, and it's outstanding. And I look forward to having that. I haven't had it since the shutdown happened due to COVID. So. I think maybe the last time I went there was in February of 2020, and it's now July, so it's been a long time. And I was going to say, oh, it was delightful. Chef Ito has such a big heart, and he has proven to me that you don't need words to communicate. I mean, he communicates through hugs and waves and smiles, his facial expressions. He doesn't really use sign language, but he kind of has his own way of using his body to express things. He'll move his lips sometimes so you can read his lips. Sometimes he writes things down. It's been a beautiful kind of journey of learning how to understand somebody who's not literally speaking your language, you know? And I really appreciate that about him. And so let's see, I've known Ito for a long time because I have videos from O'Loc, embarrassing videos on my Eco Vegan Gal channel of me reviewing the food. I think I've published those, but I definitely have recorded them. Now I'm like, hmm, maybe I never released those. But I remember doing videos around Ito. He never wants to be on camera. That's also a big thing of his. He doesn't like to have his photo taken. And I think that's like a spiritual thing too. Is it, Jason?
1: I've never asked him. I don't know.
0: I guess I just assumed it was. Maybe it's just a preference, but he doesn't want to be on camera. And I think I've probably known or first met Ito back in like 2009 or 10. So it's been a, a long run and he, I've never heard him speak.
1: Well, you know what I just found out? What? You can get carry out from Olac through all of the delivery services here in LA. So I know what oh. I'm doing for dinner tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Getting that yam shrimp and egg rolls yes. and noodles. And I, yeah, now that we're talking about it, that is the dinner plan for tomorrow. 100%.
0: Excellent. Cause support that small business. The last query for this episode is something that people have been searching a lot, Jason, and you are a great person to discuss this more. I'm sure you've obviously mentioned it in some other episodes, but I'd love for you to share a little bit more about Abraham Hicks, because that's a big point of interest on Google Analytics. A lot of people searching for Abraham Hicks, finding our podcast, so, can you share with anyone who doesn't know who Abraham Hicks is and then your experience, your knowledge, anything else you'd love to share on that subject matter?
1: Yeah, Abraham Hicks, I was first introduced to actually via the movie The Secret that came out in 2006. They had already been doing a lot of work and wrote many, many books for Hay House specifically around manifestation, right? So they were really one of the first people I became aware of in terms of the process and the practice of manifesting things?
0: Well, first of all, who's they? And second of all, it is full circle. It just occurred to me because we were talking about manifestation towards the beginning of this episode. I did not intend for that. So I'm curious, not just giving some context for Abraham Hicks and who they are and when you reference that, to really be clear for anyone who's just learning about this person or persons for the first time. Yeah. With your... Just acknowledging the manifestation side of it, what did you think when you learned about like the secret back then and what your perspective is now about Abraham Hicks?
1: Abraham Hicks is it's a woman named Esther Hicks. And for many, many years before he passed, she was on tour and doing these programs with her husband, Jerry. Esther is a channel for a non-physical sentient entity or collection of entities, beings that she calls Abraham. So Abraham Hicks is a reference to these non-physical beings, entities called Abraham and the physical female human channel, Esther Hicks. I've seen so many videos and listened to so many recordings of her channeling this wisdom and perspective from Abraham around leveraging our energy on the planet and how energy is important in terms of manifesting people, situations, jobs, wealth, success, all of these things. So it's really the first book I remember reading is called The Vortex and it's about lining up your energy and managing your thoughts and how thoughts have energy and thoughts are become thought forms and thought forms become physical manifestations on the planet. If I really look back on my first exposure to them and their philosophies in The Secret, I have to laugh because I remember there were scenes in that movie of people, there was one guy who was sitting down like in his lazy boy chair and You know, they were talking about like, you can't just think about it. You have to physically embody being in the situation like you've already manifested. And he's like, I think it showed like a Ferrari. And he's in his Lazy Boy and he's acting like he's driving the Ferrari. And then like, boom, the next (laughs) scene is like he's in the Ferrari. And I'm like, yeah, now that I reflect back on it, I'm like, "Mm," I take a little bit of umbrage with how they presented it, which is just like, line up the energy and stay positive and don't give up hope. And imagine like you're already in the Ferrari and you'll get the Ferrari.
0: And be honest with your love for cars like that, Jason, There's part of you that saw that scene and was like, wow, that's all I have to do?
1: Of course. And I'm in my 20s when I see that. And I'm like, wow, all I have to do is sit in my chair and imagine I'm driving the Ferrari as if it's already in my driveway, which is like, mm, I think they simplified it way too much.
0: And if it was true, and this movie came out 2006, is that what you said? Is that right?
1: Yeah, correct. Wow. Gosh, that was a
0: while ago. So that was 14 years ago. If it was true, then you could have technically have manifested this car by that time.
1: Yeah, but then I hear the detractors like, "Oh, well you didn't line up your energy long enough and you lost faith that it could happen and so your energy dissipate." Like, okay, let me just break this down for a second. Do I believe that we have the ability to create a quality of energy within our being that can draw or help to magnetize certain situations to us? I do believe that. Yes, and I believe by working on ourselves through mindfulness, meditation, accountability, taking responsibility for our responses and not our reactions in life, but really paying attention to how we're showing up energetically in the world. Does that have an effect on what shows up in our life? I do believe that. Do I believe that there is as much control or as much responsibility for what shows up in life? I think that that has been blown out into a realm of mm, hyperbole and giving ourselves way too much influence over reality. And here's what I mean by that. They make it sound like, yeah, just line up the energy and do all this stuff. We go back to the privilege and manifestation conversation. I think that it's been simplified. And again, I use the word pedantic and oversimplified of like, yeah, just line up the energy and keep thinking about the thing and it'll show up. Now, Have a lot of dreams that I've sat and meditated on showed up in my life? Absolutely. But for me to take like credit for it and be like, look what I did, I manifested it. Again, it's not taking into account all of the people, all of the serendipities, God, universe, spirit, my family, my friends, the advantages, the privileges I've had. All of that's a factor. Like I'm not the one solely responsible for manifesting it. And the umbrage I take with the whole manifestation conversation is people, in my perception, putting way too much stock in, quote, they did it. Which to me, in some cases, feels very egoic and very myopic and people... I just think that at a certain point, we have to acknowledge that we are not the ones fully in control.
0: It's certainly fascinating. We should continue this conversation because I want to dive into it deeper and look at different perspectives on the privilege. I mean, just looking at the cast, it's a mostly white cast. It's a mostly older cast of a lot of gray-haired people. I don't know exactly how old they are, but just older older than me, let's put it that way. Not millennials, mostly white Except for with the exception of Michael Beckwith and Lisa Nichols, I think everyone else is white. That was in that movie, The Secret. But I did learn about The Secret from Oprah, and she's an interesting case of a person of color, a black woman, who really believes in that and has found that it's worked for her. But you know, she's kind of in a lot of ways in a class of her own, and so. <laughs> You can't just say, well, it worked for Oprah, so it doesn't matter if you're black or white or whatever. And that's an interesting thing. I have a lot of ignorance around that. I'd love to dive deeper into the privilege side of things like this. This has certainly opened up my mind to it. And it's a complicated thing because I agree with you, Jason. (laughs) There's one side of like, well, if you don't believe it, it's never going to happen. And then the other side, the extreme is if you believe it, it will happen. But what about the gray area in between? Like, Just believing something doesn't work, but not believing something also doesn't work. So what do you believe? Is it a comfort thing? Are you doing it to make you feel like you're more in control when you're really not? Is it a coincidence if something works out? Like, I don't know. I've had a lot of different experiences with manifestation myself, and it's hard to pinpoint. I'm not an expert on it. I would like to believe it's true, but I'm really curious about examining the privilege side of visualization and manifestation.
1: Yeah, I think for me, just as we wrap up here, with it's an ongoing examination too of, as I mentioned before, sort of a spiritual rhetoric that's been dominating the wellness and conscious and, I guess, self-help communities for a long time, right? Is that there's a lot of jargon and rhetoric and techniques that get passed and talked about over and over and over and over again. But I think ultimately what this is really comes down to for me is you practice things, you see how they work, you make more experiments, you make more practices, and you keep what feels like it works and what resonates and you let go of the rest. And it's really important for all of us, whatever advice, techniques, tips, books, guides, etc., That it's not a one size fits all approach. And we go back to this over and over and over again, right? Is sometimes things work and they resonate and they feel good and you see results and sometimes they don't. And it doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean you're wrong. It doesn't mean you did it wrong. It's an experiment. And I think over all of this in examining ourselves, Whitney, and taking a good look at ourselves and wanting to do better and wanting to be better global citizens, we're going to experiment. There's going to be experiments that work. There's going to be experiments that fail. There's going to be things that work for a while and then stop working. And it just shows us that, I don't know, we're constantly evolving beings. We're constantly changing and the environment and the containers we're in keep changing. And if we're dedicated to learning and growing and evolving and improvising and stumbling and <laughs> all this shit that makes us human. That's the journey, right? So I think in summary, that's kind of how I'm feeling about all this is certainly right now during this time of social upheaval and awareness and planetary evolution and social justice and COVID and the whole damn enchilada, we have to be open to trying new things and looking at ourselves and experimenting in new ways we've never done before. I think that's one of the only ways that we're going to get through this as a human family.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that, Jason. One last side note, one little um fun little piece of trivia for you that's completely unrelated. Today is National French Fry Day.
1: Well, now I want French fries.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also because oh, it's lunchtime and I'm hungry. Yeah. Well, you got to go eat your lunch. I ate my lunch before we started and I've already been thinking like, what's my snack going to be? I wish it was French fries, but it's not. Ever since I went low carb, I've really cut down on the amount of French fries that I eat. But I have started to introduce more carbohydrates into my diet again. And it is a very wonderful thing that I cherish. Big side note there. Thank you to the listener for being with us on this journey, especially towards the end where we kind of go all over the place. But that's part of the fun is exploring all these different funny, interesting, serious things that people like you search for on the web. And how that ties into the overall conversation about things like racism and manifestation and wellness and the journey of self-discovery. So we are very grateful for you. We hope you enjoyed it. And the other episodes, as I mentioned before, please subscribe. Even more importantly, we would love for you to do two things, one or two, both if you'd like. One is that leaving a review on a platform like iTunes really helps us out. So if you haven't done that yet, we would be very honored because that helps us learn more about you, what you like. Uh, if you have any little notes in there, you can share it in there or you could share it with us privately. I'll get to that in a moment. But it helps other people discover the podcast and we would love your support with that too. Since we would love to learn more about you, we put together a really simple survey. And it's mainly to see like what platforms you're listening to and or what podcast platform you use and things like that. And that just helps us kind of refine it so that we make sure it's accessible because, as we said, accessibility is incredibly important to us and making sure that we're reaching people where they're at and who they are and not leaving anybody out. So the more we can learn about you, the more that we can kind of fill in those gaps. And one really simple way for you to support us is to fill out that survey. There's two easy ways to get to it. One is to go directly to the link, which is podcast.wellevator.com survey. Or if you just go to podcast.wellevator.com, you will find the show notes for every single episode that we do. And you can easily find this one if you're listening right after this episode came out. It is top on the list in order of date. Or you can search for it. Just type in any keyword and it'll pop up for you. This one will likely be called something related to the social determinants of health. I have a feeling that's going to be part of the title. We never know what the title is when we're recording. It gets shifted over time. Anyways, when you go to podcast.wellevator.com, find the show notes. There are links to everything we've talked about, all the articles we referenced, the brands we referenced today, like Greenly Organic, Liberated Salon, Swanwick, and then all the other random references like O'Lock and Abraham Hicks, etc. If you just want to see everything we've mentioned in one place, that's at podcast.wellevator.com and Wellevator is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. That's our website, and um, we would love for you to fill out that survey. So again, podcast.wellevator.com slash survey, or just find the link in the show notes. And also linked in the show notes is our social media, which is at Wellevator on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, TikTok, we're on there as well, and YouTube. We've done a few things on YouTube, not a ton yet. But I bring that up because that's a great way for you to connect with us publicly and or privately. You can send us a direct message. If you have something private you want to share, you can share our stories or share our posts if they resonate with you. You can comment on things. It's a great way for us to be connected to you. And our website's also a great way. There's a comment section there if you'd like to comment something. We are trying to make it as easy for you as possible to get in touch with us. The last route to do that is through email. Our email is hello at And that's linked on our website too, just to make it super simple. Our website is The Hub. We have free resources for you there. We're always working on new things. Our newest resource is called From Chaos to Calm. It's a free PDF ebook all about managing anxiety and stress, feelings of depression in times that feel chaotic, whether it's COVID or Black Lives Matter or whatever else you're going through, society is going through. We're there for you. We want to make sure that you know you're not alone. That's a huge part of our mission statement is helping you find peace and joy and learn about yourself through the process. So we're doing whatever we can to make that easier for you and bring some love and happiness into your life. Thank you so much for listening once again. We'll see you for the next episode, which comes out on Wednesday. And stay tuned. We've got a lot of interesting subjects to explore.